Hello, how are you going? My name is Dom, if I haven't met you, I'm an, a, an, an assistant pastor, I guess, a, a pastor of our church, and uh, I'm so glad that you're here with us uh, this morning as we continue through the book of Numbers. Uh, it's, it's been a while since I've preached, actually, and so I'm looking forward to getting into God's Word with you. Um, but before we begin, I just wanted to uh, uh, tell you a bit, a bit, of, a, a bit of a short story. So, um, Jody, uh, my wife, and I, we've been married for nearly six months. Uh, very, very close. Uh, we're going to have our six-month, is it an anniversary? I don't know if it's an anniversary. I don't know. It's in a few days. And so we'll probably have dinner somewhere at McDonald's or something, you know, romantic and all that sort of stuff. Um, but it's, it's fantastic. And uh, we've just had, these, these last six months have been a real whirlwind. There have been a lot of change in our lives. Uh, for example, um, Jody has had to deal with some changes of her own. She's had to deal with uh, on these cold, sort of wintry, autumny sort of nights that uh, uh, I might unconsciously steal the blankets. And, uh, you know, being this kind and sacrificial husband that I am and keep her cold and shivering in, in, in the middle of the night. Uh, Jody has had to deal with uh, maybe a, a change of different standards with what a clean kitchen looks like. Uh, I have a particular standard. Uh, Jody would argue that it's not really a standard. Um, but that's something she's had to deal with, a change that she's had to deal with. She's also had to learn that sometimes, I, not sometimes, every night, I sleep with my eyes actually kind of half open. <laughs> it's actually a little bit scary. I was going to show a picture, but I didn't want to give you nightmares tonight. So um, I do do that. Now, Jody's had to make some changes. I've had to make some changes too, you know, like, you know, I've had, I've had to adapt. So I've had to learn that uh, boiling dumplings shouldn't be a meal three times a week. I've had to learn that uh, bed sheets should be changed more than once every few months. I've had to learn what it's like to sleep next to a snorer. Uh, but, sorry, Jody. But one of the more tricky changes uh, to our lives since being married actually has been in regards to thinking about how we relate to our parents, right? How we relate to our parents. Now, it's, it's not things like how often we'd see them or how regularly we'd have dinner or go away on a holiday with them. Not, not that, but simply, um, what do we call our new parents? See, my parents, this is really classic of them, soon after getting married, I think it was like maybe a day or two after, they came to me and said to me, while Jody was in the bathroom, they said to me, Dom, we now expect Jody to call us mum and dad. And to call us anything else would not be right. Now, you might be going, of course, Jody should call your parents mum and dad. I mean, you're married now, right? But just imagine, just for a second, right? You're Jody, and, that you, and you've known my parents uh, as simply auntie or uncle, or Dom's parents, for as long as you've known them. And all of a sudden, overnight, you're now related to them. And you're expected now to call them mum and dad. Like, there's suddenly di different people in your life and to your life. Now, I don't know, actually, to this day, do you call my parents mum and dad? She tries, she tries, right? It, it's a hard thing to do. Um, <clears throat> the piece of advice that I got uh, when relating with my new parents, Jody's parents, uh, is that you've just got to force it at the start. Right? You've just got to force it. You've got to say mum. You've got to say dad, even when it's the most unnatural thing to do. Right? 
Um, I can't remember the countless amount of times where mid-syllable I'll be saying their actual name, so Henna or Neville, uh, and then I'd have to correct myself mid-word until it becomes natural. See, they're my new parents, and that's how I ought to relate to them. I'm glad that there was some laughter because I was worried that I might be the only weird one who thought uh, in that way. But Southwest, we can put a lot of thought into how we relate with others, can't we? See, for Jody and I, it's our new parents. Maybe for you, it's your friends, your employees at work, your colleagues, your family, maybe the person you're dating, your marriage, maybe the, the teachers of your kids, I don't know, you name it, right? Chances are, we put quite a bit of thought into how we relate. And so this morning, as we continue to look through the book of Numbers, we're going to be answering the question, how should we be relating to God? How should we be relating to God? Now, if you haven't been with us, uh, we've reached the point in the book of Numbers where there's been a decisive turn, a huge turn. Uh, We're not going to go into a whole lot of detail, but when you look at the book of Numbers from like a satellite perspective, what you're going to see is the Israelites, the people of God, have just um, missed probably the biggest point in their history up till now. Ever since humanity had been cast out of the garden, back in Genesis, God had created a plan to get His people back to a land of blessing. This has been civilizations in the making, this plan. And just last week, we got so close, didn't we? I mean, if you recall, Numbers 13 to 14, which John preached from last week, we saw that God's people, now a large nation, most likely over a million people in size, They've been rescued from slavery, from the superpower Egypt. They're on the edge of this promised land that God has promised to give them, this land of blessing, this land of abundance. And what do they decide to do? They reject it. They could see the land. They could smell the land. They could almost touch the land. And what they do is they turn back. They reject this place of blessing that God has for them. They have been waiting for this moment ever since the third chapter of Genesis. What could be theirs? They turn away. They turn their back towards God. Now, the task before us today is a pretty big one. Uh, In your outlines, it looks looks like we're, and from the Bible reading, it looks like we're just reading the first three verses. We're actually not. We're covering four chapters, chapter 15 through to chapter 19, but we'll be looking particularly at chapter 16 to do that. So there's a lot there, but... I want you to keep that question at the back of your mind. All of this is about how should we be relating to God, yeah? How should we be relating to God? Now, before we get into the passage, let me pray. Uh, Father God, we thank you for the opportunity uh, to hear you speak, that you reveal yourself to us. You're not a distant God, and you want to relate to us. Father, be with us today. Uh, Help us to hear. Help us to desire uh, to relate to you in that way. We pray that it you would be speaking powerfully and clearly to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'm going to try um, to recount for you the events in number 16. So feel free to follow along in your Bibles. I'm going to do a little bit of jumping, um, but also feel free to listen as we go along. I'm hoping to be faithful to uh, what Rachel read out for us, that first bit, and also the rest of the chapter. Um, So we're going to be looking uh, at the account from two angles. 
Right? Firstly, we're going to look at the angle of an accusation and a rejection. So, uh, sorry that the first point in your outline says two accusations, but we're looking at an accusation and a rejection. And then secondly, we're going to look at two responses, yeah? So, an accusation and a rejection and two responses. So, firstly, we have an accusation. Now, at the beginning of this section, we meet three people. We meet Korah, who's from the tribe of Levi. We meet Dathan and Abiram. And they're from the tribe of Reuben. There's also actually a fourth fellow. His name is On uh, in verse 1, but uh, he kind of goes off somewhere. And we don't hear from him again. Sorry, had to do it. These men are unhappy. They're unhappy with Moses. They're unhappy with Aaron, Moses' brother. And it's not just them. These three men have been such a force that they've gathered 250 recognized community leaders with them. This is an uprising of national proportions, yeah? National rebellion. And these three men, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, they're the instigators. Now, why are they unhappy? What's going on? Well, they're not fans of Moses, and they're not fans of Aaron as being the ones in authority. And they've come up to Moses, and we see that in their accusation to them. Korah comes up to Moses, and he says to him, pretty much, why why do you act like you run the show? Why are you... Why do you act so above all of us? Dathan and Abiram later in the passage will say similar things. Why are you bossing us around? They kind of pretty much say. Why are you lording over us? See, what's going on? Korah, Dathan and Abiram are accusing Moses and Aaron that they've gone overboard. That they've gone overboard with their authority and that they've gone too far. In a lot of ways, these guys sound a bit like Aussies, don't they? critical of authority, distrusting, skeptical with those that hold power, tall poppy syndrome, right? But we know from previous weeks that this isn't a new dimension to what's going on in the book of Numbers. Ever since chapter 10 of Numbers, we've seen grumbling against leadership. There's been one episode after another, after another. Authority to the Israelites can't be trusted. Leadership cannot be trusted. So this is the accusation, right? that the leadership of Moses and Aaron have simply gone too far. But there's more to it, right? There's more to it than just simply another accusation that we've seen time and time again. And we'll see that in the rejection. We'll get to that in a moment. But what's going on for Korah? What's going on for Dathan and Abiram? What's what's the underlying reason for why they instigate this national rebellion? We get a hint of it in their declarations before Moses and Aaron. As they come together, these men declare that the whole community is holy. Yeah, we heard Rachel read that. The whole community is holy. Every one of them and the Lord is with them. See, these men led by Korah, they believe that they are all holy. That Israel as a nation is holy. And there, I mean, there's certainly truth to that matter, right? In fact, just at the end of chapter 15, if you just look there, there's this little section from verse 37 to 41 about tassels on garments. See, God tells Moses that every Israelite has to wear a tassel on the corner, corner of their clothes to remind them that they as a nation are called to be holy. And if you remember, if you know your Bibles, you might recall that all the way back in Exodus 19, when they're at Mount Sinai, God, God gives them the law, but before He does that, He tells them that the nation of Israel is to be a holy nation. So the fact that Korah and these men believe that they are holy, there's certainly truth to that, right? But what you will see is that in their rejection, 
these men mix this truth that they're a holy nation and they use that to turn on Moses and Aaron. See, what they're doing is they're basically saying to Moses and Aaron, we don't need you. You have no right to be set above us. Who are you to put yourselves leaders over us? Who are you that we can only relate to God through the two of you? We're holy. God calls us holy. We've got these tassels. Our nation is holy. Some of us want to be priests, if you look at verse 10. We don't need you. We don't want you. We can relate to God on our own terms. See, Southwest, this national rebellion is all about rejecting the priestly authority that Aaron and Moses play in relating to God. They want none of it. And they want to relate to God their own way. They want to relate with God on their own terms. Now, let's just pause here for a second, right? Because I think the idea of maybe priesthood and priests are a little bit uncommon uh, for us. It's not like we have priests that we deal with on an everyday basis, like just around, right? Um, Maybe some of us who have grown up in the Catholic tradition or have attended a Catholic school might be familiar with a certain type of priest, but it's a little bit different from what we understand of biblical priesthood here right now. Uh, So we're already on the back foot in some ways, yeah? When we come to passages like number 16 that speak so much about priesthood. But I think, uh, in actual fact, priesthood isn't something that is totally unfamiliar to us. contrary to what we might think. In actual fact, I think we kind of relate to priest-like figures every day. Now, what do I mean? Uh, Jody and I drive a, a Subaru Impreza, right? We drive a Subaru Impreza, we like our car, it runs smoothly, it turns on and it goes. No issues, right? I'll drive Jody to work, I'll drive myself to college when I've got to study, uh, when I've got class, no issues, yeah? Now, right now it's fine, but there's going to come a time when our car won't work properly. There's going to be a failure of some sort, some sort of problem. And in that moment, I'm not going to know what to do. You see, to me, an engine looks really complicated. I pop the hood, I go, what is going on here? I don't know if people like you look at engines and you love them. I don't. I'm confused. I'm lost, right? And so I'm not qualified to do much about these problems. I don't know anything about cars about, apart from how to drive them. And so uh, I know people like Johnson would love nothing else than on a weekend to turn a tinker around with a car. I think Ed used to do that too, if I'm not mistaken, right? So these guys get it. These guys love to get into the nitty and gritty. I would want to spend my weekend doing anything else but that, really. And so what would someone like me do with a broken car, broken down car? What would someone like me, without a qualification gap, an intellectual gap, do with a broken down car? Well, I'd take it to a mechanic, right? I'd take it to a car workshop to have a look and get it fixed. See, in, 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 a, in a weird sort of way, a mechanic is kind of like a priest. And their car workshop is kind of like their temple. It's a sacred space that is set apart for the purpose at looking at broken down cars. You're not going to go there to get your coffee in the morning. You're not going there to do your groceries. It's a set-apart space for broken-down cars. And the mechanic, similarly, is like a priest. He's an individual who's trained, he's qualified to deal with this broken car. See, for a person like myself, there's a gap, right? And the mechanic is the trained individual, qualified individual, who can step in the gap and do something about it. 
that's pretty much a priest. The whole idea of a priesthood is to have an individual or individuals to step into a gap who are able and qualified to help do something about it. And so for the Israelites then, coming back to the account, when individuals or the nation sinned, they needed someone. They needed somebody, a priest, to represent them in the gap of their brokenness before God, to help fix the problem on their behalf. And so... Um, Coming back to this account, right, the rebellion is all about priesthood. I hope you see that. The rebellion led by Korah no longer want Aaron and Moses to relate to God, to be their priests, to be their mediators, the, the people in the gap. They believe they have overbearing authority. They believe that they're holy. They believe they can relate to God on their terms. So that's the accusation. That's the rejection. Let's now move to the two responses that we'll look at. We're going to look at the response of Moses and then the response of God. Firstly, Moses' response. Now, in almost uh, Wakandian fashion, right, Moses responds that these accusations against his authority must involve a trial of sorts. Now, it's not a trial by combat, but it's a trial to determine who it is that God has chosen. See, for Korah and the rebellion, they believe like we've said, they're also set apart, that they're chosen. They believe that from among them, there are those that are eligible to be priests. And so Moses sets the trial. Both Aaron, the high priest, and Korah, and the 250 community leaders that they've raised to, to this national rebellion are to perform a task that only priests do, to prove who was truly set apart. What they need to do is that they need to offer incense before God in senses. Now, senses are kind of like an instrument used to carry these burnt offerings, kind of like an Olympic torch, if you can imagine it like that. Now, this challenge, this trial, should be raising all sorts of alarm bells for the people of God, the Israelites. Because it, they just had to think back, right? To Leviticus 10, we meet two of Aaron, the high priest's sons. Their names, Nadab and Abihu, they take these same senses, they put incense and added fire, unauthorized by God. And what happened to them? Well, fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. Right? This trial that Moses has set is dangerous. Judgment is a real possibility. Why is that? Why is that? Well, the key verse is in verse 11. Moses tells Korah that it is against the Lord that you and all your followers have banded together. It's against the Lord that you and all your followers have banded together. See, Moses knows that it is the Lord that Korah and all his followers are ultimately rejecting. It's not him. It's not Aaron. It's God. And so it's really unsurprising, right? At the, right at the beginning of the account, when Moses first hears this, what does he do? He falls face down. It's almost like a face plant, but not as, deli not as deliberate, right? But he falls face down when he first hears these accusations because... Usually, when someone insults God, it's like he's trying to duck for cover. It's like when somebody insults God, Moses is expecting that judgment of God, the judgment of God is about to come, and so he's ducking, falling on his face. He expects that to happen. And so he turns the accusation back to them. Because it's not Moses and Aaron that have gone too far, but it's this uprising group, led by Korah. They're the ones that have gone too far. They've overstepped, not Moses. And so what's Moses' response to this, this accusation and this rejection? His response is that judgment is coming. 
How does God respond? Well, we have the stage set, right, for God to come in. The trial is here. Moses gives these guys a full day to reconsider their accusation, but they don't retract. retract. Instead, they come full force. Korah, the men, the 250 community leaders, they all come in with their senses. They're ready to go. They're offering these um, incense offerings to God at the, at the center of their camp, in the tent of meeting, at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Here they are. Right, just imagine the scene, right? You've got M- Moses and Aaron. You've got Korah. You've got Adiram and, and, and Dathan and Abiram. You've got the 250 communities. You've got the nation gathered at the center of their camp, at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And what's God going to do? Well, God is furious. God is absolutely furious. But notice he, does, he speaks, but he only speaks to two people. Have a look at um, verse 20, right? The Lord, who does he speak to? He speaks to Moses and Aaron only, exclusively. That's significant, isn't it? That God doesn't speak to anybody else but them. And he tells them, separate yourselves from this assembly so I can put an end to them at once. Separate yourselves from this assembly so I can put an end to them at once. See, friends, God at this very point was willing to wipe out most of the nation. Like I said earlier, this is not simply accusing and rejecting Moses and Aaron. This is rejecting God. And so God takes these accusations personally. What ends up happening? Well, although the threat is real, it does not pass. See, Moses and Aaron, they, 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 they... come before God, they appeal to Him, and God's judgment narrows just to these instigators. Moses then commands the nation to move away from Korah, to move away from Abiram and and Dathan's tents, as God will narrow His judgment to them only, and as we'll soon see, the 250 leaders as well. And so Moses, as a prophet he is, he prophesies how they will perish as evidence that he is the one chosen by God. He prophesies that God will open up the earth And they will swallow them and everything that belongs to them. So it will be clear who it is, in fact, that is chosen by God. Who it is, in fact, that has the authority from God. Who it is that has treated the Lord with contempt. And the judgment takes place exactly as Moses prophesies, right? The earth opens up, swallows these men, their households, their possessions, and they're separate from the community. More than that, the 250 community leaders, they're consumed by fire, just as Aaron's sons who offered unauthorized incense to God did. Now, there's a, there's a lot there, right? There's a lot there. But one thing you need to notice is that there's a whole bunch of irony there, isn't there? That Korah and his followers, what do they want? What did they originally want? They wanted to be set apart. They wanted to be separate as Moses and Aaron were. And what does God give them? Pretty much exactly what they want. They're separated from the community as Moses directs everybody to step away from them. They are separated from the community as they perish beneath in the realm of the dead. They are separated from the, uh, at the location that they aspired most. Right? They're at the entrance of the tent of meeting where God's glory dwells, and it's there that they perish. See, before we move to the third point, what do we learn from this account? Some of you today might be going, Surely that's unfair. 
surely that's unfair. Why would you condemn these men so harshly? Why would you judge them so extremely? Now, to answer this question, we need to revisit what's just taken place again, right? Remember, again, chapters 13 and 14 were to be the climax up to this point of God's people ever since Genesis 3. This was to be the climax at the time of God's promises to them that they finally would be God's people, that they finally would be under God's rule, but now again in God's place, this promised land. See, God has provided for this exact group of people so profoundly. He's saved them from captivity. He's parted the Red Sea so they could walk on dry land. He's sustained them with heavenly food. He's given them laws so that they might live as His people. And yet, when they finally reach the place that God graciously provides, they say no. And even after they say no, and they're sent to wander the desert for 40 years, even then, if you read chapter 15, chapter 15 is all about God saying to these same people that in spite of their rebellion, that He will still be their God. That they will still enter the land in spite of their rebellion albeit a different generation, but he will keep his promise despite everything that's happening. See, friends, a judgment of this magnitude that we read in chapter 16 comes only because the people's rebellion has been so persistent. God's judgment is in reaction to the contempt that the people have shown him, despite God wanting to care for them. See, this is the pattern all across the Bible. When God reveals himself so dramatically, so extravagantly, he expects those that he reveals himself to, to obey, to comply. And if you don't, well, you're subject to rightful judgment, because if you aren't willing to obey, obey in that situation, you're never going to. And that's what happened to Korah. That's what happened to Dathan and Abiram and these 250 community leaders. So this brings us to our third point. What should we learn? Uh, what should we learn? Now, uh, the biggest lesson to take away from this account today is that we relate to God only on His terms. We relate to God only on His terms. That's what number 16 is all about. Korah and his followers wanted to relate to God on their terms, without Moses, without Aaron. And what does God do? He clearly says, no, you relate to me on my terms through those I have appointed, Moses and Aaron. And he shows that a number of ways in our passage, and in our broader passage, right? He speaks, as we heard already, exclusively to Moses and Aaron. He judges relentlessly, yet rightfully, the instigators that oppose him. In, in verses 36 to 40, he'll instruct Moses to tell Aaron's son, the next high priest, to, to, to convert these senses that all these men have brought forward that have now become holy and, and turn them into a sheet, a number of sheets that will cover the altar so that it would become a constant reminder to the Israelites that only Aaron's descendants could be priests and approach God on behalf of Israel. To reinforce the point, in chapter 17, we're going to see 12 staffs with names engraved of the leaders of the tribes to be brought into the tent of meeting. Right? And overnight, what's going to happen is that only Aaron's staff will bud. Only Aaron's staff will blossom and produce almonds compared to all the other staffs that do nothing. 
See, Aaron is appointed to this role. Aaron's descendants are appointed to this role. Nobody else. Chapter 18, God outlines to Aaron just how the entire nation is to acknowledge the ministry of the priests by providing for them in their work. See, hopefully you see the point, right? There's a lot there, but the purpose of all these chapters next to one another is to show that God relates to people on His own terms. God relates to people on His terms, not on theirs, not how they want to. Now, if that troubles you, um, if that bothers you that God would want to relate only on His terms, if that sounds um, exclusive and um, bigoted, perhaps, I want to suggest to you that um, even in every day, a lot of good things, even freeing things, at the surface seem pretty restrictive. They sound pretty awful and require doing things on the terms of another, not on your own. Here are a couple of examples, right? Now, um, I don't know if you remember ever preparing for your first driving test. Right? Your first ever, not, not the theoretical test, not, not the pressing the button, the actual physical driving test. Um, you remember that you had to restrict yourself to the terms of a whole bunch of different things. You had to restrict yourselves to your teachers, whether it be your parents or the instructor. You know, they tell you things like, hold your wheel, 10 to 2 or 9 to 3, depending on your instructor. They tell you to drive slowly, to stick to the speed limit. I remember my mum holding on to the, the, the handles of the car, holding on for a dear life, right? There are restrictions of road rules, right? Road signs, traffic lights. You have to stop at a stop sign for three seconds. You have to stick to the speed limit. You're not meant to floor it when the light turns amber. There were restrictions of the car, right? If you drove auto, you had to know that you had to turn the car on when it was in park. It doesn't work otherwise. If you're in manual, you have to know where the friction point is on the clutch. See, all these restrictions, all these terms that are imposed on us, we, but we submit to all of them. Why? So that we can drive safely from point A to point B, and we can drive competently from point A to point B. So we know that when we drive, other drivers have learned the same thing, so we know every time we go on the road, we're not going to die. So when we go on holidays, we know how our car works, because it all works the same. See, by relating to the terms of the instructor, of the road rules, of the car itself, we actually have freedom. It's the same with music, right? If, uh, if you're anything like, if you had anything like my upbringing, um, I had to restrict myself to the discipline and terms of my mum and my piano teacher. I had to do scales, I had to practice, I had to do all these exams that, let me tell you, I definitely did not want to do, and my parents definitely knew I didn't want to do. But in submitting to them, in doing the terms of my teacher, what my teacher asked and what my mum asked, what seemed restrictive, what seemed a bore, has now become pleasurable freedom, that I can play things that I want to play. See, why should you bother to relate to God on His terms? Because it is actually for our greater good. Remember, God was the God wanting to give His people the promised land. God was the God who saved them from captivity in Egypt. But more than that, and more importantly, this is why it is good for us. See, God gave these terms because without them, there was no way to be in relationship with Him. 
this was the only way. This is why these terms are ultimately good. Remember the whole idea of priesthood that I was talking about with the mechanic? See, there's a gap. There's a gap of brokenness that someone unqualified and incapable is unable to fix that only someone qualified and capable can step into and represent. See, God is saying, if you relate with me on your terms, guess what? I'm not going to be able to relate with you. In fact, if you relate to me on your own terms, I'm going to have to judge you. And that's what happened to Korah, Dathan, and Abiram and and the leaders. See, Southwest, the terms that God sets to relate with Him are less about restriction and they're actually more about permission. Without them, it's not permissible to relate with God. The gap needs to be filled by a priest that God appoints because without them, the gap remains, you see. God sets these terms not because He is restricting His people from relating with Him, but precisely so that they can relate with Him. It's kind of like, this is really bad, but it's kind of like um, seeing your GP. Your GP wants to see you. Your GP wants to help you. But in order to do that, there are restrictions and terms such as making an appointment and coming on time. Right? The act of making an appointment, the act of coming on time, isn't because the GP doesn't want to see you. But precisely in order that they can see you. That's why so much is made of the priesthood here. So much is made of who God has chosen to be His appointed priest to represent His people in in order to relate to them. And friends, the same same is to be said for us. We've looked at 1 Corinthians 10 many times in our series of Numbers. So don't worry about flicking there. But the events that the Israelites go through what they, what, they, what they are to us as people after the cross is that they are examples written down as warnings for us. This isn't just a historical story that's quite extravagant and quite amazing. That's just interesting to hear. Inherent in these accounts is a call for us to self-examine. You see, friends, like the Israelites, we need a priest to relate with God. The terms are the same. We are broken. There's a gap that we cannot bridge on our own. We're not qualified. We're not capable. We need a priest just as the Israelites did. The the terms haven't changed, right? But the priest has. The priest has changed and the priest is far better. You see, friends, the priestly role that Aaron plays foreshadows the priestly role of Jesus. In the letter to the Hebrews, we, we see that Jesus' priestly ministry um, is, 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 much, is in many ways very similar, right? Um, we're going to pop Hebrews 5 a little bit on the screen. We're just going to read it together. Um, it reads, Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since... He himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. So this is pretty much talking about uh, Old Testament priests. Verse 4, And no one takes this honor, that's the priesthood, on himself, 
but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest. And we'll skip down to verse 8. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. See, the writer of the Hebrews is trying to make the same point that we're reading in Numbers 16. That just like Aaron was appointed to be priest, so was Jesus. The writer of the Hebrews says that the honor of priest isn't something that he took upon himself. It was an honor designated by God. But the writer of the Hebrews adds that unlike Aaron, Jesus is a far better priest. And he kind of gives a whole bunch of reasons for why that is. And I'm only going to give you four. Here are four reasons why Jesus is a better high priest than Aaron. Number one. See, while the high priest for Israel would offer incense and sacrificial animals to, be the, to bridge that gap, Jesus' high priest would offer himself. This isn't a temporary solution, unlike what the Old Testament priests for Israel would have to do. But as we just read, by Jesus offering himself, he becomes a source of eternal salvation. Number two, since priests for Israel were imperfect by themselves, as priests they were imperfect, they had to offer sacrifices for themselves. But Jesus, as perfect priest, had no need to sacrifice for himself. For for Israel, priests had to sacrifice daily. Jesus was sacrificed once and for all on the cross. The Israelites had many priests after Aaron. When one died, another had to take their place because the need of the gap was still there. They were temporary, but Jesus' priesthood is singular. He's the only one, and he's the only one because he's permanent and eternal. See, for some of you here today, you are still wrestling with this. That before God, that we are truly broken and need Jesus to step into this gap to be our high priest. The truth, according to the Bible, is that we can't fix this problem. No amount of goodness, no amount of morality, no amount of charity changes that. And at the end of the chapter, we're going to see that the Israelites, back to number 16 that is, at the end of the chapter, we see that the Israelites again oppose Moses and Aaron. Even after all that's happened, even after all the judgment have happened, they oppose them again. They haven't learned their lesson. They again approach the tent of meeting. They again oppose Moses and Aaron. They again oppose God. And God, in response, sends a much harsher judgment, this time a plague. We read that it, this plague wiped out thousands. But what does Aaron, the priest, do? He steps into the gap with his incense offering again. And in verse 48, he stands between the living and the dead, between the imperfect Israelites and a perfect God, and the plague stops. See, friends, this is... Uh, there could not be really a more perfect picture of what Jesus does as high priest. Jesus stands in the gap between the living and the dead on the cross. It's not a popular thing to say, but if we relate to God and if we insist of relating to relating with God on our own terms, our lives are destined to receive a similar judgment that Korah, Dathan, and Abiram faced. 
But here's the thing. God wants to relate with you. God has appointed His perfect high priest, His his Son, Jesus, to step into the gap, to stand between the living and the dead. And so I urge you, if you're still thinking about this stuff, if you're still wrestling, wrestling, keep going. I'd love to chat with you. Pete would love to chat to you. Your friends who brought you would love to chat with you. But for many of us here today, and as, as we close, we believe that Jesus is our priest. We believe that Jesus has stepped into the gap for us. That He's given us this relationship with God, that we began relating to God on His terms. But I wonder for many of us whether we are are still doing that. I wonder whether we're in a particular season where we're no longer relating to God on His terms. Perhaps for some of us, we're weighed down by sin. We're unable to see and we're unable to move past it. It might be one glaring sin we know of, or it could be many. And there's a deep shame maybe that comes because of it. But friends, because Jesus is priest and ever interceding and for us, our confidence, can I gently yet firmly remind you, is that on the priestly work of Jesus, not our own, we are right with God. We can have this quiet confidence that we enter the presence of God, not from anything that we've done to fix our situation, but wholly on what Jesus has done. And if there is a glaring sin in our life that's bringing us shame, maybe that's something we've got to think about this week. Perhaps for some of us, unknowingly, we are abusing perhaps the fact that Jesus is our priest who is ever interceding for us. Perhaps there is a sin that we knowingly commit. It might be a one-off. It might be many occasions, and yet we find no need to repent and confess them to God. After all, if Jesus is always interceding in the gap for us as priests, if He's always praying for us, why, why bother confessing? I'm already forgiven. Now, if there's a hint of that in your life, this truth that Jesus is our perfect high priest, it's not meant to promote negligence. It's our commitment to live as Christians. It's meant to promote faithfulness. The fact that Christ is praying on your behalf ought to draw you to repent of your sin and to pray earnestly. Our prayers are effective. They are being heard by God because of our great high priest, Jesus. And lastly, perhaps for some of us, we're in a time where we need wisdom. We're maybe in a challenging season of life. And if that is you, the fact that Jesus is always interceding for us means that somehow... Jesus cares about your life, maybe even more than you do. That He's always interceding for you because of what He's done on the cross. And so perhaps some of us need to come to Jesus as our perfect priest in our time of need and confusion. So how should we be relating to God? In answer to all of this, we relate to God for our good. We relate to Him on His terms alone, through the perfect priest that He has appointed for us. Let me pray. Father, we are captivated by accounts like we see in number 16, where we see how much we need help, how much we are unable to do on our own, how much, despite all our striving and all our charity and all our morality, that before you, there's still a gap. And so we thank you for 
appointing a priest, whether it's for, for, for Israel with Aaron and his descendants, and now for us, even better, your very own son. We ask that the fact that we have a priest, the fact that we have a priest that is interceding for us, that it will draw, give us a tremendous comfort and a deeper reliance on who you are and what you've done for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name.